to the sixth in continuing the continuing lectures on Rabbi Soloveitchik's Emergence of Ethical Man. Last week we spoke about man as a plant, and now we're going to speak about man as an animal. Somehow man as an animal sounds a lot worse than man as a plant. But in any case, um, we're going to discuss um, chapter four and um, the beginning of chapter five. Now, those of you who are familiar with Rabbi Soloveitchik, not necessarily the emerging ethical man, um, his most famous work, his most famous essay, is an essay called The Lowly Man of Faith. And probably the philosophy of Rabbi Soloveitchik um, is probably known either for the term halachic man or for Adam 1 and Adam 2. Now, let me remind you who Adam 1 and Adam 2 are. Rabbi Soloveitchik says in The Lonely Men of Faith, I'm reading from page 10, he says that we see in the Chumash that there's a description of Adam Arishan in chapter 1 of Genesis of Bereshis, Perak Aleph, and in Perak Beis of Bereshis, and the two descriptions of man, right, are not the same. They don't stim. So, Rabbi Soloveitchik says, right, the two accounts deal with two Adams, two men, two fathers of mankind, two types, two representatives of humanity, and there's no wonder they are not identical. Okay, so therefore, what the Bible critics would say are two texts, the P text and the J text, and Yoshabeh Soloveitchik makes it into two dinim. Right. Um, I didn't say that. Adam 1 and Adam 2. Now, Rabbi Soloveitchik says in Genesis 1, when we read, God created man in his own image, and the image of God created him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And in Genesis 2, the account is substantially different, says Rabbi Soloveitchik, and the eternal God formed the man of the dust of the ground, etc., etc. So, in other words, this is something, of course, that, you know, not a glishet of even chazal, actually um, um, take notice of, that in Bereshis, um in Perak Aleph, um, there's a description of man, description of Adam Arishan, and the emphasis that Rabbi Soloveitchik um, mentions is man's conquest, man's prowess over the rest of um, the world. And in fact, actually, um, after a Kodesh Baruch Hu says, V'yei melokim nasa adam b'tzamelokibuseinu, Immediately, we'll do with gas hayom of oiv hashamayim. The aim of chol ha'oretz, chol ha'remes, ha'remes, ala oretz. So, in other words, basically, man is presented as one who's going to rule over the rest of nature, and then even the bracha to man is pru uvu umilos ha'oretz v'kivshua. The bracha to man is, in fact, actually to conquer the world, to fill up the world and conquer it. Do with gas hayom of hashamayim, and um, this is to be contrasted in um, Perak Bays, where it's not really man's prowess, which is emphasized at all, but rather actually um, the, um, the fact that HaKadosh Baruch Hu places Adam Arishen and Gan Edim, La'abdul Shamra, and we have the various distinctions between Bereshis, Perak Aleph, and Perak Bays. Abbas also notes, as everybody notes, that in Bereshis Aleph, the term for a Kodesh Baruch Hu is Elohim, 
understand in Bereshis um, Beis, the term for Kodesh Bochul is Hashem Elokim, Yudke Vavke, as well as Elokim. Okay, so from that, Rabbi Soloveitchik, actually, that's how Rabbi actually begins what is really, in fact, his probably most famous essay, his most famous philosophical work, defining Adam 1 and Adam 2, two aspects of humanity. Adam 1 is an aspect of humanity who symbolizes man's prowess, man's ability through his intellect to, con- to, to conquer nature, technology, everything that we associate with the glory of man in terms of man's capability of, in fact, changing his environment and, in fact, um, literally ruling not only over the, um, over the biological world, but, in fact, actually um, penetrating into the... the, um, the um, the ends of the physical cosmos. That's, in fact, Adam 1. In contrast to this is Adam 2. And Adam 2, you would say, um, is involved in an existential relationship both with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, right, and both with fellow man. So therefore, Adam 2 expresses what you would call the covenantal relationship, the ethical relationship, the personal relationship, both with God and both with the covenantal community. That's Adam too. Um, it's clear that Yashabes Olavechek, to a certain extent, identifies himself more with Adam two than Adam one. Adam two is, even though Adam one has a certain spirituality, it's a spirituality that comes from man's prowess. More or less, sort of like the the Tzalem Elokim of Chaim of, 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 of and Nefshachayim. Whereas um, Adam two is really, in a certain sense, a much more existential being, a being who actually um, engages in what you would call a I-thou relationship, both with the Kaddish Baruch Hu and both with men around him. Okay, those are the two prototypes. Now, what's very interesting is, is that in the emergence of ethical man, Adam 1 and Adam 2 actually reappear. Now, of course, Rabbi Soloveitchik doesn't call them Adam 1 and Adam 2, but the fact is that Adam 1 and Adam 2, actually, in the fourth chapter of the Bereshit Ethical Man, actually appear as two different stages of the evolution of man. In other words, Rabbi Soloveitchik understands that in chapter 1, man, even though there are aspects which distinguish him from the animals, which we'll get to in a little while, nonetheless, Rabbi Soloveitchik says clearly, I'm reading from page 76. Adam is still an animal crawling in the jungle, still the ape which is aware of its needs. Man may have acquired a technical intelligence that makes, him t- makes tools and organizes, but his awareness was utilitarian technical. In other words, as we'll see in a little while, Adam, one, becomes actually Adam Harishan in Perak Aleph and Bereshis, and there, that's the first stage of evolution, where in fact what distinguishes Adam from the animals is actually his intelligence, but in fact there is not any actual um, distinction, ethical distinction, between man and the animals. And because of that, Adam Arishan is still embedded in nature, and like Rabbi Salavajik said, he's still an animal crawling in the jungle. So in other words, Adam 1 metamorphosizes in the emergence of ethical man, I'm assuming, of course, that ethical man was written afterwards. If written before that, then maybe Adam 1 emerged from the evolutionary distinction. That, um, 
I'll leave that for the intellectual historians and the various pundits who want to um, contemplate this. But in any case, Adam 1 is actually still um, an animal, even though a much more superior animal. It's only in Perak Bays that in fact Rabbi Soloveitchik begins to describe Adamarishan ethical terms. And that's the uses of Yudke Vavke, Havaya Elokim, which we'll speak about in a little while. Now, what is the distinction between Adamarishan, between Adam, and between the animals who were created on the same day, that is the sixth day of creation? So, Yeshavah Soloveitchik actually um, makes the following deal. In other words, he um, takes note of the distinction between the command that is given to, um, to the animals and the command that is given to man. The command that's given to man, right, is Vayayla, to say. Whereas the command given to the animals is Vayitzav. Rizalevechik um, notes and makes the following note. He says, I'm reading from page 74. The simple word Vayomer sheds a new light upon man and upon his role and task. Vayavarech, which is used with regard to the animals, denotes the embedding into the organic frame of existence its specific tensions and insistencies by which the animal is driven to a certain performance. The Vayavarech does not constitute any norm or ethical law. In other words, basically, Vayavarech just means being an animal in the natural sense. But in the case of man, God also spoke to him. He informed him of his biological preferences and tendencies. Through his speech to man, God registered in the latter's mind the necessity of his automatic drive, thus transforming it into a conscious, deliberate, and anticipated act directed upon the same objective. The automatic push and blind force movement of Vayivorech turns into a conscious drive intelligent movement of Vayoyimah. In contrast to animals, man yields to his natural instinct not only because he is driven by power comfort his to such behavior, but also because he is motivated. Through Vayoyme, biological, biological mechanical, mechanical drives and theological intellectual motifs are interwoven. Okay, to make a long story short, to make a long Germanic English statement short, Vayoyme does not indicate that man, at this point, as we'll see, has any free will. Which means, without free will, there's no ethical component. However, right, Vayoyme means that not only does man act, but man is conscious of his actions. Vayoyme is consciousness. So man is conscious, and being conscious also, of course, means that he will act with intelligence. But like Rasulavajic says, man yields to his natural instinct. In other words, man is not going to think that he has a possibility, or man is not going to actually develop a will to do anything other than his natural instinct. That's going to be in Perak Bays. But man is in fact actually conscious of his actions. So in other words, consciousness does not imply free will, which means the possibility of the other, the possibility of negation. But in any case, consciousness does mean that in fact man's um, actions are not only physically motivated, but also cognitive, what you would call motivated in an intelligent sense, whatever that means. But as the result of Atrix says, right, Adam is still an animal crawling in the jungle. That's Parak Aleph. Now, Parak Bays, 
is where the real ethical bifurcation takes place between man and not only the animals, but also the rest of nature too. Okay? Now, Abyashibasalavechik um, discusses in detail these three stages. Um, he speaks about them, um, he speaks about them beginning on page 77. And there, he actually speaks about a process, and I'll call it an evolutionary process, of three steps. Okay? Um, he speaks about these conceptually, in other words, from at the end of, from beginning from page 76 to the end of chapter 4. But in chapter 5, he in fact actually um, locates them in the Pesukah themselves. And very, very, it's very interesting that in the um, edition of Emerging Ethical Man, which is the only edition which came out, um, chapter 5 is actually called part 2. When in fact actually chapter 5 is actually a continuation of um, chapter 4. So if part 2 is from the editors, I humbly disagree with the editorship. If it's from Rabbi Soloveitchik, so it's interesting that the division of sections seems to be something akin to the division of sections in the God for the Perplexed. But anyway, Now, I want to begin backwards and, and actually um, locate three stages of evolution in three psukim three diukim that Rabbi Soloveitchik makes in Perak Beis. Okay? In Perak Beis, of course it says, Eila toides ha-shemayim va-oretz, I'm in Perak Beis, Pasuk Dalet, v'hibaram, b'yeim aseis ha-shem lo-kim, elot v'shemayim. Already there's yudke vavke as well as elokim. Elokim is, as we all know, gematria tefer from ha-chanak ha-droshes. And yudke vavke is going to indicate for Rabbi Soloveitchik an I-thou more existential relationship with the Kodesh Baruchu. Now, there, right, Kodesh Baruch Hu, the Chumash tells us in Perak Bay, Kodesh Baruch Hu, right, makes a gun, a garden in Be'eden. And there, he says, um, he places, it says in, um, in Pasuk Tezvav, He places Adam in Gan Eden, and then he says, you can eat from all the fruit of the tree, of the trees of the Gan, but but you can't eat from the etzadas, as everybody knows. Which means already there emerges in man a will, a drive to do something against his nature. Because when a person is hungry, he wants to eat. Now, Right now, there's a commandment of man that you can't eat something. You have to stay hungry, and that's what Rosh Hashanah says. Rosh Hashanah says, um, first of all, there's a tzivoy, there's a commandment. Vayitzav indicates an ethical, right, um, an ethical norm, and it's like this: a new law and all uniqueness was imposed upon him. I'm reading on page 87. <coughs> This law cannot be experienced in the beating of his heart, but in a new area of existence. The new norm is completely alien to the biological impulse. Right? The hunger appetite drives man to a certain performance. 
The mere fact that among the satisfies of the man one fruit was isolated and set aside as taboo indicates the unique character of the norm. In other words, all of a sudden, there's a new force, an ethical one. Man has to, right, desist from what? From eating food. And this is important. Why is this important? Because Rabbi Soloveitchik in page 77 understands that this is, in fact, the fulfillment of the norm is experiences redeeming, elevating, and meaning-giving. In fact, it's the beginning of free will. He says this guarantees free choice. In other words, already man, in fact, has to resist a biological impulse. And because of that, that's called an ethical norm, the first ethical norm. That's the first development of an ethical norm in Adabarisha, in man. Now, I want to actually make note of the fact that there's a, um, there's a, um, a, fa- a very interesting essay by Professor Frankfurter, I think it's William Frankfurter from Princeton University. He wrote a book called um, On the Importance uh, of Caring or on, on the importance of what we care about. I think that's the number, that's one of the essays, that, the book is a collection of essays. And there, Professor Frankfurter um, um, explains what is the difference between an animal and a, and a human being. So, Professor Frankfurter says the following thing. He says, a animal has what's called only a first order will. Which means he'll only do something which drives him. Man has what's called a second-order will. He can desire a desire. Which means he can desire something which might be what? Something which might be against his natural impulse. So in other words, what Russell Levitchik is saying is very similar to what um, William Frankfurt is saying is, is that this is the very, very beginning of the distinction between a man and animal in terms of an ethical distinction. Once again, man is conscious of his acts. He's different from an animal. That's from Parak Allah. But only in Parak Bays, right, is there the first stirrings of what we would call free will. That's stage number one. Okay, now, what is stage number two? Stage number two is a very, very creative reading of the Psulkin. Okay? There Rabbi Sevichik says, right, in the next Psulkim, Yudches, It's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make him a Ezekinegdoi. And then it says, And he brings all the animals, everything to Adam, and Adam calls them names. What does Ezekinegdoi mean? So most people understand it is not good for man to be alone, to be solitary. Now, most people interpret this, and Arsalevichik also mentions, that what does it mean? Man is already a social animal. Man is already, in other words, a person who has companionship. And it's not good for him to be alone. In other words, to be alone, in a negative sense, usually indicates that there's already an established um, existential companionship, and for some reason man finds himself without one. Arsalevichik says, no, that's not the way to read a puzzle. Alone means, it, I'm quoting from him on page 89, it is not good for man to remain solitary in the sense that a non-personalistic life is a life in solitude, a single life. In other words, alone means man does not have a personality in the sense that, in the sense that what? In the sense that he sees himself as being different from his natural environment. That's what alone means. In other words, 
A man person lives in loneliness. Man animal lives in solitude. In other words, what he means is the following thing. In other words, true loneliness, right? True loneliness, um, right? True loneliness is a, is a personality. A person is already aware of human companionship, of an I that relationship. If he's denied this, that's called being, being alone. But alone here, like our Soviet says, I'm quoting him as a state of neutrality and indifference. It's not good for man to be this, this, um, this being who in fact doesn't have a personality, who's a purely natural being, which means he's a man-animal, which means he's a part of nature. But rather what? It's important for man now to be a personality, which means at this point, says Professor Levechek, man is being pitted against nature. In other words, we're transforming, and I'm quoting you on page 90, man-animal into man-personality. That's what he says, and he says, Adam becomes the arbiter. Suddenly he stopped marching with nature in the same direction. He turned his face to nature and began to wonder, to examine, to reflect, and to classify. Suddenly a schism developed between man, nature, and nature. The split implied in the cognitive gesture, the discrepancy, involved in the subject-object division. Okay? So in other words, what happens is, all of a sudden man finds himself what? Different and other than that of nature. Man is pitted against nature. There's an other. But that other is what? Of course, he uses the expression the other, the existential expression the other. Other means an it. There's an I and an it. So once again, we have two stages of man's biological, ethical development. Stage number one is man can now resist um, the biological drive. That's the tzivoy, the commandment, not the infinite das. Second level is, decides man, which means now man is separate from the rest of nature. And actually, the way Rabbi Shemel understands the psukim, the following psukim are very, very, ni- are very nice. Because the Kodesh Bolchel brings all the animals. The other Marisha, and you all know the Major's Chazal on that, I don't have to explain that to you. Rashi brings it. And other Marisha wasn't satisfied. Why is it satisfied? Because other Marisha looks at himself as being separate from nature. That's stage number two. Stage number three is already going to be Chava. And Chava is going to introduce a third level of ethical development, which is the I thou relationship, which means not only am I set and other than a physical world, I am other than another personality, I, thou. So therefore there is not my drive, there is I, it, and then there is I, thou. These are the three levels of ethical development which are all in Perak Bay's of Bereshus. This is what Rabbi understands. Okay, so very, very good. What has Rabbi told us? In Perak Aleph, what Rosh calls, in the Lord Man of Faith, Adam 1, man is basically an animal with a superior intelligence and conscious of his what? Of his, um, of his biological drive. And on this he calls Tzalem Elohim. In Perak Bays, then there's a three-stage ethical development of man, all detailed, in the Psukim, Vayitzav, 
and then loitev oizel lavadoi, and then esa eza connectoi, and in these three levels, man becomes other than his biological impulse, other than the physical world around him, and then other than another human being. The three others, the three O's. Okay? And that's what Roy Sovich understands. Okay. This, of course, is a, a completely biological reading of the Psukim of Bereshis. In fact, Rabbi Soloveitchik himself says he's reading these Psukim without mysticism, without metaphysics. There's a revolution here. There's a revolution in biblical hermeneutics and Jewish philosophy. There is no um, usage of any metaphysical terminology in describing the, in fact, the emergence of Adabarishan, his relationship to Chava, and consequently his relationship with the Kodesh Baruch It is purely understood as being a type of biological evolution, which has what you would call ethical content and ethical consequences. And that's in fact actually what Rabbi Soloveitchik says. Rabbi Soloveitchik says, and I think I quoted this in a previous lecture, that he is interested really in man's relationship with a Kaddish Baruch Hu from the immanental um, point of view, which of course is, according as we understood, the Baal HaTanya completely. So Rabbi Soloveitchik has actually presented us with a biological reading of the Chumash, and of the ethics and of the commandments of Judaism in accordance with the ethical content of biological law, as he understands it. This is Rosh Hashanah. Okay, now, I want to make note that it seems to be that Rabbi Soloveitchik is the only person to have actually said something like this. But the answer is no. Many people will argue that probably the two most important Jewish thinkers or philosophers of the 20th century of Yeshebeh Soloveitchik and of Vobizchak Koyin Kuk. And the fact that they, other than the fact that they both lived in the 20th century and are known to be theologians, but I don't think anyone would put them together. In fact, what they write and what they say seems to be totally different. The fact is, I want to claim that they have a lot more in common than people think they have in common. Now, for this reason, I'm going to read you something which appears, actually originally appeared, in the notebooks of Love Cook, which were published a number of years ago, entitled Shmoyne Kavatsin. And basically what they did was they took his notebooks. Now, like, by the way, just like Emergence of Ethical Man, it was published posthumously, without his permission, obviously. And it turns out what was published without permission posthumously, right? I say without permission without the author's permission. Um, in fact, actually, we're going to see that in fact we have two Nevi'im being misnabe b'signanechat. Okay, now, and the, 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 there are actually four volumes of the Shronika Vatsim. This is the last volume, which is paperback. I don't know why this came out in paperback. But, um, in this, in this over here, it's called Pinkas Hadapim, which means, I guess, this was a notebook. And the notebook is actually from Yafo, between, um, between Tafresh Samach Dalit and Tafresh Ayin Dalit. 
So, um, Tafesh Ayin Dalet is um, is uh, 1914. 1914. So it's from 1904 to 1914. Okay, this is Rav Kook writing between 1904 and 1914. So I want to read to you. There are there are uh, pieces that are numbered. I want to read to you from the 26th piece. It's actually in brackets 26 with Arabic numerals, and Daf Samak Dalit says Rav Kook like this. The physical world, and all the forces that operate in the physical world are in a constant state of movement. Basically, they're in, in perpetual movement. There's no apparent Teleology. There's no apparent tachlis. It was like random. It's a purely natural movement. Does this sound like the Ilan Vital of Henry Bergson? That's exactly it. An inner urge. An inner urge. For its independent life. They're back and forth. They come together in certain places. Until they conglomerate in man and give him freedom. The creativity of the evolutionary process. This is Rabbi Cook's version of Henry Bergson's Two Sources of Religion and Morality. And they lead to man's conquest of the nature and on the self. With intellect. He goes on, he speaks about that in fact, not only do these emerge in man and express themselves in man's conquest, in fact, actually, man continues to ascend. There's a continual evolution of man intellectually. And he says also morally too. Now, Lemay Nafkemina. So Rav Kook speaks about that in the earlier section, 25. Rav Kook says in section 25, which is a very, very long section, which I don't have actually time to go through in detail. Maybe another series on Shkofrishkol.com will actually focus on the philosophy of Rav Kook. And there he says that man's intellectual freedom is necessary in order for man to achieve the purposefulness of creation and nature. And says, Rav Kuk, right? Bechos kasyad, with strength, tzrichen anu, we have to, lahasen, we have to take away hayira hachitzaynis, the outer fear, the outer yira, the places, emos alaseichel, that, that in fact, terrorizes the intellect not to act freely. Rav Kook says if a person acts with fear of using an intellect freely, that's a terrible thing, because that denies the entire, Ilan Vital denies the entire process of the emergence and the, and the moral and spiritual evolution of the physical world. Very, very interesting that Rav Kook is actually expressing 
the same ideas, albeit in a different language, right? Then Rabbi Soloveitchik, which leads me to actually the following remark. And the remark is actually based upon something which actually I saw in the Tzitka Satzadik of Reb Tzadik HaKoyin. Reb Tzadik HaKoyin says in Tzitka Satzadik, Simen Tzadik, very easy to remember, Reb Tzadik says, Umimatzav HaOilam Bechol Dor from understanding the state of the world in every generation, and he's clearly speaking right, we can understand the state of the Jews, the Jewish neshama in that generation, and the matzah and the state of the Torah. In other words, if we look at the state of the world, it would be the state of the secular world, the state of the thinking world at large in every generation, we can understand the state of the thinking of the Torah world and the Torah in that generation too. That's what Tzaddik says, which means that if I really want to understand what the matzav of the Torah is, I'm thinking about the philosophy of the Torah is in every generation, I should look to understand what the matzav of the world intellectually at large is in that generation. It's clear to me that the, at least, if I want to understand the thinking of Kuk and Rabbi Soloveitchik, I have to understand what the thinking of the world at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century was. It appears that Henry Bergson, in his philosophy of creative evolution, which gives a meaning to the nature of man and morality and religion, was the matzav of the world, was the situation of the world at large at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And from that, I can understand the matzav of the thinking of probably the two most outstanding thinkers at the end, at the beginning of the 20th century, which are no other than Rabbi Soloveitchik and Rav Kook. Now, as a final remark, Rav Kook actually says this explicitly himself. Rav Kook, in his famous book, Orot, in Kufnun Beis, says that, of course, Bolcho did a stucker, did a charity in order to uni unify the world, that he didn't put all the talents in one nation, not even the Jewish people. What he did was he gave different nations different talents. They were able to come up with things independently. And sometimes Judaism, right, the Torah, Yisrael, has to be influenced or receive these ideas and bring out the Kedusha, to bring out the ultimate spiritual meaning of these ideas. That's what Rav Kook says in Daf Kufnun Beis in what's called Yisrael V'umas Oilam, which is um, in Orot. Now, the fact is that's what's going on here. In other words, there's a Hegelian, a zeitgeist, a, an idea of history, ideas which are being developed by the world at large. And we see that Rav Kook and are bringing out it's in fact actually his true spiritual meaning. In the case of Rav Kook, he's understanding this as being a philosophy, right? Philosophy of Surah Adam of Tzalem Elohim, a way in which man is supposed to express himself. In Rabbi Soloveitchik, he's actually using this to understand, to interpret the Pesukim in Bereshis. In other words, 
the new philosophy, the new awareness, the new philosophy and science of the world is actually being used to interpret the meaning of the Psukim in Bereshis, which of course is, um, you know, the Kodesh revelation of man's ethical completion and ethical purpose in life. So this is what we see that Rabbi Salavetchi and Rav Kork are actually being affected by the same cultural and intellectual environment. Okay, I will leave that for you to ponder until next week. From an underscore place, you should Until next time, be well.